you know, you're an idiot, you don't know what you're doing, get her out, you know, she's only there because she's the boss's daughter. I just don't get it. Walk a day in my shoes and then see if you want to say that. Hi, Claire. Thank you very much for, for joining. And I really appreciate because I know how intense a race day is so that you take the time. It's really nice of you. No, it's a, it's a pleasure. I was just saying it's quite weird, me being interviewed by you. When I used to hold the dictaphone when you were doing your interviews. No, it's really nice. Change, huh? Yeah, I think times have <laughs> time, changed. Time Thank change. you for having me. Do you remember where we first met? I do, very clearly. So it was at that test in Barcelona, wasn't it, when you came and did like your trial run, I think, and we had you with Nelson Pico. But it was my first, did you know that was my first kind of big event that I did as a press officer by myself? And I was given the kind of project to look after you and Nelson, that test. And I literally, Nick, I've never planned anything more thoroughly in my whole life because it was like, this is like, this is Keke's son, it's Nelson's son. You know, there's so much spotlight on them. I've got to do a really good job and I can't mess this up. I was so nervous, I can't tell you. But you were so much nicer than Nelson was. <laughs> Can okay, I well, say th that? Thank you very much. <laughs> So just to say that was the that was 2003 then and it was just to explain to the listeners that was the showdown of the sons of world champions yeah and you at Williams gave both of us the same opportunity and you were choosing uh, your test driver yeah well I wasn't at the time because yeah. I was just a little press officer but yeah so I was just there like holding the dictaphone as yeah. I used to do back then but yeah in, that was a big deal and in the end we were so close that no one got the job <laughs> <laughs> you guys didn't dare to make a choice so, I think so no Frank one got it. probably didn't dare make a choice between because he probably would have had either Keke or Nelson but on the phone he didn't want it <laughs> he was but a then bit he came and drove for us a few years later no a few months later a few months later yeah, yeah a few was months later a few months? yeah so first it was okay. like no decision yeah and a few months later then Sam Michael who was kind of the boss as well at the team yeah. and technical director I was walking around in Monaco and he calls me and he's like Nico I think we want you as our test driver and yeah. you can imagine for a young guy yeah It's like the, the moment I'll never forget in life. Yeah. This, this voice on the phone saying the epic Williams F1 team wants me as a test driver. It was just amazing. Anyways, so 2013, did you look at me and you thought this guy's going to be world champion? <laughs> Please be sincere. <laughs> no, I think I was just so focused on my job. But do you know what I'm really proud of is the fact that you did. You did become world champion. And I remember talking to you. Um, I came to that Mercedes Christmas party and it was the year when you literally fought tooth and nail with Lewis for the championship. And I came up to you and I was so disappointed for you that you hadn't won because obviously you started your career with us. So we always felt a connection with you. And we always, you know, we always were watching the TV and just hoping that you were going to do it and you didn't and I can only imagine how disappointed that would have been so I said how sorry I was and how I was cheering for you and then when you did go on and win it and we all knew what that what that meant for you but what it took for you we were so proud of you at Williams so to go out for having started your career with us to then go on and be world champion I wish it had been with us obviously it wasn't But yeah, it was wonderful to see that for you. Well, I'm really thankful huh? because uh, you had such a big part in my career at Williams. And that's why it was such a pleasure also to come to your 40-year Williams celebration a uh, few months back and everything because very, very thankful, really, I, I am. Did you enjoy your time at Williams, Nico? Yeah, of course. No, no, I did enjoy it because it was just, it's, it's one of the greatest teams in the history of the sport. So yeah. it's so proud to be a part of that. And then to work with Frank and Patrick, who are the absolute legends yeah. and who, who were my dad's bosses yeah. and then to work yeah. with them it was just just, uh, just crazy yeah. did Patrick and scare you? 
Okay, well, so I have uh, <laughs> I have two anecdotes actually. Okay. So um, because as a young driver, I think particularly starting at Williams at the time with those kind of people was really not not easy. Yeah. And Sam Michael was the same. So he was very similar to Patrick in that in that sense. Just this maybe a little bit of it's a bit I think too hard with young drivers and and a little bit of a lack of human empathy like to feelings like yeah. okay I, I'm not a machine you know mm -hmm. I have feelings as well. Yeah. And so I have um qualifying Melbourne yeah. uh, 2007 and it's after qualifying one just before qualifying two so mm. it's the most intense moment yeah and qualifying one went, went quite bad I was just about to be thrown out of qualifying I was like 15th mm. way back still better than my teammate because he was thrown out I think it was Woods yeah Patrick came to me in the middle to my car knelt down into the cockpit oh God, no, kind of say? opened my visor and said Nico, you're going to put us out of business if you continue driving like that. No, he didn't. This was in the middle of qualifying between Q1 and Q2. <gasps> first race of the season. Oh. And I'm like, holy moly, this is Patrick <laughs> Head. Like, what? Oh my God, I was absolutely terrified. Way to motivate your driver, I was absolutely right? terrified. <laughs> to be honest, I did an awesome qualifying right after that because I put it on P7, <laughs> which for the, for the team was like a really, really successful position to be in. God. So I don't know how, but that was hard. That's, that's, that's really, really I'd hard. I never do that. So I think that Williams had this reputation, but when, you know, Frank and Patrick are around of being quite tough on their drivers, there wasn't a lot of empathy or emotional intelligence going on. It was like, they're just, you know, your driver, get on with it, do the job. And there are so many anecdotes of Patrick doing similar things. I think he said to Ralph Schumacher on the grid, because he hadn't qualified very well one day during a race, got to the grid, went down to see him and said, um, Ralph, when you woke up this morning and looked in the mirror, did you see a racing driver look back at you? <laughs> and you're like, but there are loads of them. There are so many anecdotes, but you know, clearly it, maybe it works. Maybe I'm too soft because I'm really soft. I have a lot of, like I always talk to our drivers, make sure they're doing okay. Have they got everything they need? I don't know. It's different. I think there's a different way at Williams now. But I, I think there's, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just depends on who you're speaking with. Because there's an example of in yeah. soccer, Mourinho, for example, yeah. he's very much the same style, really demanding, really tough, really hard. And, um, and I spoke to, spoke to some of his players and right. the, the players that have the more self-confidence, yeah. they quite like that to be mm. driven in that sense. Yeah. But the more sensitive um, yeah. players and drivers, in my case, I'm, I'm much more sensitive. Yeah. They struggle with that kind of leadership because yeah. it just it just puts you off and it just scares you so you, much. You've got to have, that's why this thing about emotional intelligence now, which I'm doing a lot of work around at Williams at the moment with all our cultural work that we're doing, is so important. You've got to know and understand each individual that works in your team in order to get the best out of them. So if someone's not going to respond well to that, you need to know that because otherwise you're going to, you know, just destabilize them for what they need to be doing for you and they can't, they can't operate at their best can they so can we go into a bit more details on that because i think the culture within the team is one of the most important ingredients yeah. for success can you give some examples of what you're now trying to do and how you're trying to change yeah. things and and where your dream position would be in in terms of culture for yeah. your team this is an interesting one because obviously williams has existed for so many years and we've got therefore so many cultures at play because we've got lots of different people across different generations that work for us And, you know, I think about the culture that we had over the years when I was growing up at Williams, and I think it was a culture that grew very organically under Frank and Patrick. I mean, if you talk to Frank and Patrick about culture, they would just kind of brush you off and go, what, you know, what are you talking about? That's just namby-pamby type stuff. Just put the pedal to the metal. Uh, yeah, exactly. Just get on with it. You know, we're here to do a job. We're not here to talk about, you know, Frank and Patrick didn't even, you know, not even that interested in PR and marketing. They don't really get that either. 
But for me, culture has become a really important focus point on um, driving or helping us drive performance into the race car. And there are so many different examples of how having a really strong culture in your team and any any business in general um, can really drive results. We did an employee engagement survey, which is the first that we've ever done at Williams last year, and the results weren't brilliant. Um, unfortunately, you know, in a sports team, inevitably your culture, your morale is going to be somewhat driven by the results that you're getting on the racetrack or on the field or on the court or whatever. Can I interrupt you? I know from another top team that they had more than 80% on the engagement uh, level. Really? Yes. Okay, that really annoys me because <laughs> ours was nowhere near 80%. Now I'm driven even harder to get ours changed. But I was I was disappointed because, you know, for me, it's so important that people love working at Williams. You know, that's what the culture has always been about, that we, we feel very lucky that we work in the sport that we do, very privileged to be a part of Formula One, and that everyone understands what we're doing and wants to be a part. Because in effect, we're making history. Every time we go out racing, we're making some kind of history. So you should feel proud of that. But our culture, for whatever reason, has dissipated over a number of years now, whether that be through a decline in success or you know, not having, not really focusing on it, I suppose, either, and, and galvanizing your people. And particularly now when we've all got these enormous race teams on our hands, that, you know, in the days of Frank and Patrick, they only had to really be responsible and look out for two, three hundred people. You know, I've got 650 people just on the F1 side of the business and then a further 350 on AE. And I need to make sure that I'm doing a really good job to make sure that all those people know what we're doing at Williams, know how we do that at Williams, the values that we have, that we work towards. And at Williams for us, that's around family, team spirit, teamwork, excellence, integrity. And so it's about driving those values through the business and getting everyone to operate against those. So every day when they come in the office, they know that they've got to work in that way. And if we're getting everyone to work in that way, then it creates that one culture that then drives success. So I'm a real firm believer in it. And we do, we've got a lot of initiatives that talk to that and, and try building it through the team. And it's not, you know, it's not the work of a moment. It takes a long time to really build a strong culture. We've got another engagement survey coming up in a month. And if the results aren't better, I'm going to be tearing some hair out, I think. <laughs> Can you go into one of those examples then? You said family, integrity, excellence. Can you take one yeah. and give us one specific example of something that you've done to try and increase the engagement with one of those uh, areas? Yeah, so, I mean, family for us is a big one. And it kind of talks to the teamwork and team spirit, I think, piece as well. And what we found over the past few years, and particularly as the business has grown, is that people don't feel as emotionally connected to the car. You know, back when teams were two, three hundred people, everyone, I think, felt much more much more that they had the connection. They knew that, you know, working on that little thing was going to do X, Y or Z over a race weekend. Now, I think people feel more distanced. You know, people, a lot of people you know, turn up and they're, they're turning up because they've got to pay the mortgage. They're not turning up because they truly love Formula One per se. They may not even watch the race on a Sunday afternoon. So we're trying to make people develop that emotional connection to the car, to know and understand that even if they're just working on the smallest thing, or even if they're working in, you know, the planning department or the accounts department, what they're doing actually does play a vital role in getting this race car to the track and that race car being competitive. So You know, as an example, we're taking all of our staff to um, Silverstone this year, which is a huge undertaking. It's a huge cost, but it means that they get to see their car in action and they actually get that buzz of being at the racetrack. Because, you know, nowadays we can only take 
you know, 100 or people. So that's only a, you know, sixth of our workforce to, to every race. And they, you know, when you're here, you feel that passion, you feel that energy and that fire of going racing. If you don't have that and you don't experience it, how can you understand the urgency of going racing, the urgency of needing to get your part made in time or whatever you're doing? So having those kinds of initiatives, and we're doing a big pit stop challenge as another example over the course of this year. So we've got this amazing team at Williams that does pit stop challenges for all our guests that come through our conference centre. But we're asking all our staff to sign up to do a pit stop challenge. We're putting them all in different teams. So different people get to know different people in the business um, and then they got to compete and it's kind of going to go down into you know one team competes against another the best goes through to the next round a bit like Wimbledon and then we get you know two into the final two teams into the final and then they'll have a showdown and then they get prizes at the end of it so you know it's just doing things like that you know they, they understand then what our pit stop crew go through but they get to meet other people because you know they may not meet somebody in aero through their whole time working at Williams so it's just about trying to build some team spirit within within the team. So there's a lot going on, I think, that people don't really understand that Formula One teams may or may not do behind the scenes that all tries to drive this culture of, of winning and competitiveness. Well, I think a Formula One team is at the pinnacle and at the for forefront of what a company in business in terms of performance needs to achieve. It's really yeah. uh, leading the way. It's yeah. unbelievably de yeah. demanding and, and high performance. Yeah. You touched on um, on pit stops. Williams, as you said, has 350 people working on an engineering side of it. Yes. So yeah. it's Advanced yeah. Engineering, yeah. which is a separate company, mm -hmm. a sister yeah. company. And since you touched on pit stops, um, that company, the engineering company, is doing a lot of good for the world as well. Yes. And uh, maybe you can tell yeah. us uh, about the story that what you've transferred from F1 pit stop knowledge mm. to improving hospitals and saving lives. I think yeah. that's a yeah, really, yeah. really fascinating story. So our advanced engineering business is really, it's really exciting. It's a really exciting part of our group. They do lots of different work in lots of different areas. And motorsport and automotive is a big thing and battery technology. But occasionally we get interest in different projects. And we had the, the Cardiff, a Cardiff hospital come to us, ask if they could work with us and learn more about the pit stop Uh, system that we have at Williams to see if it would help what they do in their operating theatres. And so we sat down with them over a number of months and talked them through the whole process of how the pit stop team operate. And as everybody knows, I think now in F1, a huge amount of work goes into optimizing your pit stop crew from biometrics and how people are standing in their particular positions, you know, all this statistics. Kind of stuff. It's extraordinary, right? I mean, but but it's going to take that to get, you know, pit stop down to 2.0 seconds or whatever we're doing now. And so we talked to them about, you know, where we make people stand in certain positions for the stops, um, how they lay out their, their pit equipment, the communication that goes on between the group during that, that stop. And they found that incredibly useful and transferable to what they do in an operating theatre. And, you know, I, I would expect, you know, a hospital operating theatre to be absolutely, you know, have, you know, army precision of what they do, but apparently not. And they found it incredibly useful and they applied exactly how we operate a pit stop to what they do in an operating theatre, from how they lay out, lay out their instruments to the communications between doctors and nurses and ethicists, etc., And it's been it's been invaluable to what they do. And so we continue to work with them. And then we've had, I think because it got, got so much publicity, we've had so many hospitals now around the whole of the UK saying, can we come in and can we learn from your pit stop? Which is fantastic because if in F1, we can use the knowledge that we have, the skills, all the, all the technology to do something good in the wider world, then, hey, that's a great thing. Right? And I love the fact that we at Williams can play our part in that kind of stuff. 
That's amazing. That's a lovely, lovely story. Mm. And I think that's mm. also something which can increase engagement, to be honest, yeah. because everybody, I think, will love those kind of stories, how what they're doing, what the mechanics are doing in pit stops actually is going to save lives out in the world. It applies. And you amazing. know, you're like this one, Nico, because you've got kids like I do now. But at Advanced Engineering, we had a company come to us that designs what they called um, a baby pod. So for um, very premature babies that are born with difficulties, invariably they have to be transferred to specialist hospitals. And how they were transferring them was in this kind of very makeshift kind of incubator, not particularly safe for transport, etc. So they asked us to look at this incubator and come up with a whole new technology that would be safer to transport the baby, have easier access for, for the paramedics that would be transporting them, all this kind of stuff. So we created what we call the baby pod which is just this amazing bit of kit that just helps the, the transport of these premature babies that obviously whose lives are at enormous risk. And the work that we've done now obviously helps those babies make that journey in a much safer way. And to know like as a mum now that there, I, mean, I was very lucky my baby wasn't premature and didn't have any issues, but knowing that there are now things out there that we've created that are helping babies um, in their first days of life is, is quite amazing. That's powerful. Makes me emotional. Having two little babies at home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's, let's go back to some easier things. <laughs> so, uh, Father Frank uh, is, uh, of course, one of the greatest legends in our sport and an amazing leader. Yeah. Maybe I would love to get an insight from you what you think is his greatest skill because he came from nowhere and yeah. he's built up a business which is so powerful so dominant yeah can you cover like one of the greatest skills you think you saw in him and how he made this happen i think he's very humble dad i think people do have this perception of him because they really you know just see him a lot of people just see him on the telly and they don't know him and they think you know they just see this quite deadpan face maybe quite a stern look on his face and they must just think he's a bit of an arsehole and I've had someone come up to me or at a wedding and experience if I can tell you that little story I was sat at a, a table at a wedding and you know the guy next to me half of the table my friends half not sat next to a guy who doesn't know me asked what I do and I said I work in Formula One and he's like oh great you know that always brings about conversations well what do you do and I said I'm the press officer for Williams he's like oh wow Williams that's an amazing team he's like wow do you get to work with Frank and I was like well yeah you know I'm his press officer so occasionally I have to look after him for interviews and all this and at this point like my friends have put down their knives and forks and they're really interested in this conversation and um, he said oh wow that's amazing and he turned around to me and he said is he really that much of an arsehole in real life as he looks on the telly and I was like yeah that arsehole I should probably tell you now is my dad <laughs> Oops. And like literally the guy, he, he left the wedding early because he was so mortified by what he'd said. But dad, you know, going back to him and his his core strengths, I think he's just, because he's come from humble beginnings and because he has achieved what he's achieved, or, or not, he's never, he's never really thought of himself. He's never gathered this ego that I think a lot of people in Formula One can through having such inordinate amounts of success. He's always remained pretty modest and it's all about everybody else it's you know he always says it's been nothing to do with me Williams it's what everybody else has brought to the party and I think for me that's one of the greatest lessons that I I learned from him is keep your feet on the ground you know we're very lucky to be a part of this world and success may come or it may not we're just lucky to be involved in it and I think dad's always just I don't necessarily think it's always about the winning for dad or the losing it's just about being a part of this world and he feels enormously lucky that he's a part of it and you know, he's just been an incredibly hard worker all his life and he's found something 
that I suppose a lot of people aren't lucky enough to find in their lives a job that he's passionate about. He always says, isn't it great, Claire, we get paid to do something we love and not many people can say that. And it's so true. And we have to remember that. I think uh, his uh, humble passion as well mm. is just so infectious and people around just want to yeah. want to partner up with with him and, and support him in his endeavors yeah and i think that was a, a magical ingredient in the early days to get those that ma- massive funding yeah from nowhere really with nothing frank's inc- incredibly charismatic i don't know there's something a twinkle in his eye or the way that he smiles there's something that's very magnetic i think about frank that people he he was always he always has been able to coerce inordinate amounts of money out of people and they turn around after a bit and go bloody hell did I just sign that check you know (laughs) I'm keeping signing these checks to Frank and it's because he does have this amazing capability this amazing strength to get people to buy into his dream and you know that's what it is that's what people when they do partner with the Williams that they are buying into they're buying into a dream and you know this dream of you know just the underdog trying to beat you know, the big guns out there. And that's what we're about. Very nice. And also, I would say his focus. Mm. Unbelievable ability to focus on on F1 and on, on being yeah. the best, isn't it? Yeah, he has. And, you know, it's always only ever been about Formula One for Dad. You'll know that. He is so myopic, myopically focused on Williams, on Formula One. Nothing else matters. You know, I don't know what it was like for you, Nico, growing up with your dad in F1. But for me... You know, it was all we ever talked about, you know, and that's why I'm I'm probably doing the job that I'm doing now because F1 defines me, Williams defines me, it's who I am. I can't imagine my life without it because dad was so focused on it. You know, when he came home from work, he wasn't one of those dads that left, you know, the office at home, work at home. He came home and talked about it. You know, my mum was obsessed by it. It was, it was all that... It was all that we were, you know, dad's never been on a family holiday with us. And, you know, you can think of anything worse than going on a family holiday with us. We, he took us to the zoo the other day. So dad woke up one morning. Um, the other day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You all went to the zoo? We went to the zoo. <laughs> it was magic. So, That's so nice. I know. Well, he woke up one morning and about two months ago now and said to his nurses, I've never seen a tiger. <laughs> and, you know, we've all seen a tiger because we've all either been to the zoo or if you're lucky enough, you've been on a safari or whatever. Dad's never seen a tiger. So the nurses were like, okay, let's go to the zoo. You know, he doesn't do a whole lot during the day anymore. So they packed him off and they went to the zoo. And I found out about this and I was absolutely furious because it was like, well, hold on, you can't go to the zoo and not take your kids. You know, you've got grandkids now. So I organized another trip to the zoo and we went to the zoo. It was tipping down with rain. So none of the animals were out, but I went, my husband went and we took our son, so dad's grandson. And it was so wonderful to see dad doing something normal. It was so extraordinary to just see him in a zoo with his grandson. And they went around and it was, as I said, chucking it down with rain. So it wasn't ideal. We didn't see a whole lot, but it was just normal. And it, it was odd to do something so normal, but it's taken, you know, dad to get to 77 to do something normal. And that just shows the focus that he's had his whole life on Formula One. But I think he's now starting to realize that yeah, there are some other things that you can do with your life. So he does quite like doing things like that now. So how do we picture that, Frank, with his grandson on the lap, uh, speaking to the tiger? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what was extraordinary, so there was this snow leopard enclosure. This is going to be so boring now if we edit this out. It was this snow leopard enclosure. And I said there was no animals out. And um, we got to this we're wheeling dad, pushing Nate in the buggy, and went up to the snow leopard enclosure. There was nothing to be seen. And then within like 10 seconds, the snow leopard came out and just came and sat right at the glass where dad was and just sat there for like 20 minutes 
and dad and Nate were just like in heaven watching this this leopard sat next to them and it's it, it's just wonderful because it is normal normal to do did your dad ever take you to the zoo when you were little um he was also kind of that kind of person of being so focused on yeah. workaholic in that sense yeah but uh, but no he did um, he did make time for doing some nice stuff yes holidays um, did he go on holidays yeah yeah, yeah 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 a little bit yeah maybe yeah. so maybe not quite as extreme as <laughs> as, as frank then maybe <laughs> yeah um one one more jump into the past one really really cool story from one of the awesome drivers that you had that's gonna make us like laugh or be amazed or inspired Oh my God. Alan Prost or Ayrton Senna or Nigel Mansell. Have you heard about the story of me and Ayrton in my Ayrton Senna in my, and me in my pajamas? No. Oh, this is mortifying. But I always tell it because it's just funny. And people ask me, you know, what's your experience of Ayrton? The only story that I have in my head because obviously yeah. I was quite young when Ayrton was around. But Dad, Dad was obsessed by Ayrton, and I think the fe feeling was somewhat reciprocated. They always wanted to work together after Dad gave Ayrton his first test, and so they always used to have these kind of secret little rendezvous away from the track. And Dad had taken me to a race one year when I was about four and I, I loved it and he was like my dream god racing driver you know and I wasn't one of those girls that had um, posters of boy bands on their wall I had racing drivers on my wall <laughs> and um, Ayrton was like covered on my wall when I was 14. I was in the adjoining room next to dad in the hotel we were staying in at that race and every night I would just go in and say goodnight to him and I, I'd gone in And I had my pajamas on because it was like nine o'clock. It was quite late. So I wanted to go to sleep. So I thought I'd quickly nip round, knock on the door, go and say goodnight to dad. And knock on the door, answer the door, walk in, say, night, dad. And I'm there in my like flowery pajamas and Ethan Senna is standing in the room talking. They're having a chat. And literally 14-year-old girl, Ethan Senna, me in my jammies. <laughs> It's a mortifying thing. But one of those things, you know, I don't have any greats. There I suppose we were so lucky that we did grow up in that world that, you know, we were had racing drivers around at the house or, you know, I know that Nigel, when we were very young, took Jonathan and I on the Dodgems when we used to go to Zanville and stuff like that. I mean, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's to grow up and you probably feel the same growing up in and having Formula One almost as your playground is such a extraordinary childhood to have. There are a few stories, um, but that's probably my, my favorite there. And Senna saw me in my jammies. 2014, you were leading one of the most uh, historic and iconic teams, and you had a, a very successful year as well. And you got uh, you got awarded Officer of the Order of the British Empire. No, were you were you aware of of the kind of inspirational role that you're also having in that position as a no. as a woman in such an extreme man's world? Uh, inspiring so many other women around the world you weren't aware of that no and I, I don't I don't think of myself in those terms at all any I don't know sometimes I still still think of myself as like that 15 year old girl you know that's just you know Frank Williams's daughter and you know so no I don't and you know I was given this job in 2013 and turned the team around and we managed to have a really successful year in 14 and 15 and came third and it was amazing it, it does feel like a long time ago and then suddenly yeah I got this you know I got the letter saying that you're being considered for an OBE and literally I, I almost passed out with shock it was like but I haven't done enough yet you know I'd only done a couple of years at that point 
and yeah, you know, Williams, I think I probably got off the back because, you know, I was running one of the greatest teams and it was suddenly successful after having a few bad years. And, you know, I was the only, you know, Manisha was in the paddock at the time, so I wasn't the only girl doing it. And I was doing a bit of stuff for trying to promote women, but I never saw myself in those terms. I still, I still don't really. I'm just, I'm just Claire. I just go on and, you know, do what I want to do. And I, I do what I, I think is right. And, you know, the, the female thing never was a big thing in my head. And in fact, I've always thought of myself as quite a chauvinist. You know, I've grown up in a male-dominated world. I've got two brothers, been surrounded by men all my life pretty much. And, you know, I probably think of myself more as a bloke than I do a woman. And um, so, no, I never I never did. But I now I think now that I've been on this journey for a few more years, I, I know that there is that, I think, observation that I'm in this role and so I do now embrace it more, try and use it more for, for good and to try and encourage more women to come into motorsport because I actually do really believe that. And if I think about my time and I'm asked a lot if I've ever experienced discrimination and stuff and I would always say no, just flippantly. And I think now I think actually I have, I have experienced discrimination in my in my job, in my world. And I don't want, you know, if people can do that to me. They can do that in far greater terms to other women in Formula One, and I don't want that to happen. So I do a huge amount now to make sure that, certainly at Williams, I guess, because we've just started this Women at Williams initiative, and um, I'm very proud of that. It's only early days, but I know we can achieve so much through that, not just for the benefit of women at Williams, but also in motorsport as a whole. Um, and I'm very proud of that um, and doing that work. And I actually enjoy it because I actually believe that it's right and it's the right thing to do. And you've got daughters, haven't you, Nico? Yes, so two daughters. We are now carving the way so that they will have a better experience when they come into motorsport, if they do, as a third generation of Rosbergs in Formula <laughs> One. <laughs> as long as they're not driving, that's all yeah. fine. <laughs> I feel the same with Nate. <laughs> do they say to you, do you get that question? Are they going to become drivers? What do you want them yeah, to yeah, do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always say, no. Yeah, I get the same with Nate. And I'm like, he can do anything in F1, but please, God, not a racing driver. <laughs> um, you spoke about discrimination. I think it's a really, really important topic in our world at the moment. Can you please give us an example of in the F1 world, maybe in the strategy group where you're the only woman surrounded by a whole army of men yeah. in, a, in a very, very tough yeah. environment of decision making, voting, mm. millions of dollars at stake? Can you give a specific example without naming any names, but where really you felt like, hey, this is, uh, this is not right. I'm being discriminated here just because I'm a woman. Um, no, do you know, I actually, in that group, I don't find that at all. I think I find it hard, though, in that group, because, you know, the other day I was in a, in a room in, that, in one of those sessions and I, there were a lot of people in the room and I was the only woman and I counted, I specifically counted how many men there were with me, one, the one female, and there were 32. And that's quite um, intimidating in itself. And these guys, you know, they're very good at what they do. They're incredibly competitive and they want what they want to get out of that room. And so they fight very hard. So some, I find it very difficult in that environment to kind of speak out, have my voice heard. So I have to, you know, I get quite nervous. I have deep breaths, all that kind of stuff. But I, I'm in there to do the best job that I need to do for my team. And I will fight as hard as anybody for my team. Um, so it's not necessarily in, in that world that I find um, difficult. I think it's just, and it's individuals as well. It's not fair to stereotype that just because that's a room filled with very powerful people that they're going to be discriminatory. I don't find that with that group. I find it in other circumstances, just, you know, and just random circumstances where I'll be at the table with, say, our CEO and the, all the questions, the conversation will be directed to him. 
and particularly say if it's around a driver and it's like well hold on you know who's the boss here why aren't you talking to me do you say you, that <laughs> hold no, on who's the boss here? <laughs> I, like, I walk out the meeting and I go are they having a laugh seriously you know they know it's my name above the door it's not Mike's name above the door yet either eye contact is all at the man and I think it's a I mean it's a it's, you know it's been going on for generations thousands of years it's just how human nature is and we've got a lot of work to change that that actually there's a woman at the table and she can be the boss and she is the boss. So you need to give her the respect, the deference and talk to her, not just direct it at the bloke because there's an older bloke in the room. So I, I find that a lot. And actually I've heard a scenario where it was a driver's father that really wanted to get his son in the team. And he was sat there talking at Mike rather than me and driver didn't get the seat because I was so pissed off that he had not even thought that, you know, I was, you know, important enough to talk to because I was a woman and it was absolutely because I was a woman so I, I can smell it pretty easily and I don't tolerate it and you know, there are repercussions <laughs> I think you aspire to have a strong voice then in the, in the strategy group and things like that and also in that sense when someone is speaking just to a CEO who's next to you mm. do you feel that you're doing enough to uh, to proactively then in those moments express your feelings and really fight for for what you aspire to have as a as a position And how are you doing? To, how, what are you doing to deal with that and, and to progress in the difficult situation? I'd like to do more. I, I can't sit here and say I probably do speak up enough, but I'm one of those people that won't talk just for the sake of talking. So there's a lot of conversation that happens in those meetings that, you know, it's maybe on repeat or whatever. And, you know, I just, there's no point, you know, sitting there and repeating something that maybe someone else has already said or that we've talked about a hundred times before. So I listen and you know as I say when I need to speak I'll I'll speak and I'll put my point across it takes quite a lot of energy and emotional energy to get it out but I, I do or I'll go and have a quiet conversation with somebody you know behind the scenes out of that forum if I need to so you know, it's not a case of Williams is losing out because I'm not brave enough to speak in a strategy group meeting I say what I need to say when I need to say it to the people that I need to say it to but for example to the to this father of the driver did you did you then in that moment say excuse me I mean with all due respect Uh, I deserve to get the exact same attention as you're giving at the moment to the CEO who's right next to me, particularly considering the fact that I'm actually the owner of this team. Yeah. Do you actually say that then in that moment? No. Do you think I should? I think you should, yeah. Do you? Because it's, it's very honest yeah. and it has an extreme power, as long as you do it with respect. That's the thing, isn't it? It's getting the tone right. And sometimes when you're in that situation, your blood is boiling so much that you're not going to get the tone right and you're probably just going to come across as rude. And I've been brought up with such strong manners and politeness, I suppose. And often when we were around, you know, to be seen and not heard. So, yeah, I just... No, I don't know if I would necessarily say it. I have a very good example actually for this. Um, when Michael Schumacher joined the team, mm. uh, we were doing strategy meetings and I promise you they did not give a shit about, about me. Um, huh. I'm exaggerating, yeah. but yeah. even my strategy was more discussed with Michael than with me. Huh, you're kidding. Be but not because they were meaning badly, but just because it's, he's, there's God sitting in the room. Yeah. Michael Schumacher yeah. is God. Yeah. And there's this little guy who's never even won a race yeah. sitting next to him. So, so, what did you do? so even my strategy was discussed with Michael, and so um, right afterwards, I then went to the respective person, and I and I explained in the situation, I explained how I felt about it, huh. but with a lot of respect, yeah. and I said I deserve to have exactly the same amount of attention in such a strategy meeting yeah. as Michael Schumacher, particularly when you're speaking about my strategy. Good for you. And I promise you, it had an amazing impact really? because right in the next strategy meeting. 
it probably had such an impact that I almost got more attention because he felt so bad about it. Yeah. And uh, and so really this honest communicating openly yeah. about what you're yeah. feeling, yeah. I think has a has a very very special power if you do it's it in powerful. a thoughtful way, huh? yeah. not in a way that I want to yeah. I want to kill you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> more in a way like hey, um, you know, just yeah. openly discuss to to find progress. So yeah. this is something I can really recommend to to all listeners as well. This Great open advice. form of communication, also with your with your partner in a relationship and yeah. all that, it's the same thing. It is the it's same thing. It's the same thing. thing. Just to yeah. open up and be yeah. and be uh, truthful and and yeah. and show your emotions. Put your emotions out there on the table. That expression "I feel" is really important, isn't it? If you tell someone how their action makes you feel, then that's that's the way to have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So now the worst thing ever happened. I ran out, of, ran out of battery on my notes. Oh no! <laughs> so that's the that's the, most, that's the most terrible thing that can happen what are you in an interview. Do? Can you? My my goodness. Can you okay, wait? I remember though. I, I've them. memorized them. You do so, what I do. No, I've memor- memorized them. So now you went from these glory days in 2014 as a leader. I have, unfortunately, I have to cover a little bit more some yeah, difficult moments. Yeah, and now, on. now you're running the team in in, a, in an extremely difficult situation. And you you even say to yourself, I've read in an interview that. Every day you question, am I, am I up for this? Am I, am I up for the job or am I maybe the wrong person for this? So, and, and you said in the interview that you're actually questioning yourself every single day about that, which to me reading that seemed a bit, uh, seemed quite like a little bit towards the extremer side. So I would like to ask a little bit, how are you dealing personally with this kind of situation, with the pressure that comes along with it? You've got 650 employees yeah. looking to you because yeah. You're the one paying their Christmas gifts for their kids. Yeah. And you've got fans around the world, millions, hundreds of millions, judging you all the time, which adds such a massive load, which is sometimes difficult to explain. People who listen, who, who have never experienced being in the spotlight yeah. like in that way in the public. Yeah. It's just so, it's so big and so yeah. powerful. It is. So I'd like, to, I'd like to understand a little bit from you how you're dealing with that. Is it yeah. still possible to enjoy a situation like that? Where in my experience, I, mostly I, I found it's not. Maybe you can take us through that a little bit. Yeah, so those, those comments that came out when I was questioning my role was um, last year, probably like second quarter of last year, when times are really tough. You know, we had bad performance on the car, but we also had challenging people that were around the team that were making life very difficult. And when you've got all these pressures on you, not just internal, but external as well, regardless of what, you know, the rest of the world was saying about me and Williams, um, it was tough. And so... I think it would be unnatural not to question. You know, I got a lot of like criticism for questioning myself, whether I was good enough, and, and people saw that as a bad thing. Well, I actually think it's a worse thing if you're so egotistical that you wouldn't question yourself and whether you were the right person to do this job. So I went through a period of like considerable introspection to you know, ensure that I felt that I was the right person. Because that's what I always said when I took on this job was that I will do it as long as I can contribute positively to Williams. If I thought I was doing Williams harm, then I would always step away. And that was really important to me. So of course I went through that, but I came out of it. And, you know, my role at Williams is not to design the race car. I am not an engineer. I don't design that car. My job is to put the right people in. And clearly, because we didn't have the right car, we didn't necessarily have the right people. But you know, that is not a cause for me to go, I'm done here, guys. It triggered more, you know, I needed to, to restructure. 
and to restructure the business. And, you know, I actually think that I'm, I'm pretty good at building teams. I think that's, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons over the years that I've done this job now that one of my strengths is people and having a level of emotional intelligence to understand how people work and to get the best out of them. I'd like to think that I'm, I'm okay at that. I think it's very difficult to judge yourself. It's up to others to do that. But so, you know, I did a, made a lot of changes behind the scenes and I don't think people really understand exactly what was at play last year within the team, what we were having to deal with because, you know, you don't see it. You don't see it on the telly. You know, all you see is the car going around the racetrack. But there are so many factors at play when a team isn't doing well. And, you know, what I had done for the team, people you know, in bad times figure, you know, I've bought in hundreds of millions of pounds for Williams over the time that I've been, you know, managing a sponsorship side, for example, which I still do. You know, I bought in the Martini partnership, I bought in the Rocket partnership, I bought in, you know, if it wasn't for that, Williams wouldn't be here, regardless of where the car is. Williams just wouldn't have a place in F1 if I hadn't bought the sponsorship in. So, you know, for me, I think the past two years have been an enormous learning curve and almost having that success in 14 and 15 was I think too early it was too soon because you kind of you, you get in that position where you go oh, this isn't that that hard you know I've changed the engine I've changed the driver I bought in a title partner and hey we're we're p3 you know f1's quite easy what are they all talking about so I'm almost I know I'd get I'd be shot down for saying it but I'm almost pleased we have gone through this so that we all know and understand actually how difficult f1 is and can be and what you do have to do to get yourselves back up and you know it's not easy getting yourself you know pulling your socks up and and getting on with it when you are in such a difficult position and we're in a difficult position for a lot of reasons but I know that we can get ourselves out of them there none of those reasons are insurmountable and none of those reasons would I think make me turn around and say I haven't done a good enough job and I need to go now I think that it's important that I I do what I need to do and I'm, I'm given the space and the time to do that but, you know, the pressure for me, I think, comes from the outside world now. And, you know, there's a huge amount of criticism being leveled at me and what I'm doing. I, I say I've never been on social media. I stay off it. For me, it's always been about the true test is, can I look myself in the mirror every night I go to bed and go, have I done a good job for Williams? And at the moment, I say yes, because we're bringing performance to the car. We've made the changes we need to. We've got rid of all the crap that we needed to get out of Williams that was hampering us. And we're finally on a, a good path. And I continue to, I hope, or not I hope, the people that I'm working with at Williams to take us back on that path are a great bunch of people. And I know that we'll get back to where we need to get back to. And it's about having the resilience to forget about all that noise because all that noise out there, the people that are on social media that haven't got quite honestly a clue what it takes to run a Formula One team but are very happy to criticise people like me when they don't walk in my shoes every day. It's having the resilience to just shut all that out and to get on with what I need to get on with because if I allow that to get in, I'm never going to be able to do what I need to do. So that's maybe you would say the strongest ingredient for you is to the ability to focus yeah and then yeah. not uh, not let all the all the chatter around get to yeah. you yeah because you know you can you know i'm sure you've had it you you, you can read a hundred positive things on social media about you or hear a hundred positive things in the media or in the paddock and then one person says something monstrous who has no right and has probably never achieved anything in their life and then they go and say something and it hit, it stays in your head for a week. It outweighs the 100 positive. It outweighs Insane. Every, it's, it's unbelievable Insane. how the human psyche does this to us. 
but it's it can be so damaging if you let it in so I don't and the only people that I care about or whose opinions I care about are my dad and the rest of our team if I one day had a mutiny and you know 650 people picket my picketed my office and said we want you out you are useless you are not doing a good job I would leave immediately but until those people tell me that you know this is really bad Claire you are useless please go away then I'm okay so we have something in common there because I, from my, on my way to the World Championship, I chopped out everything. Yeah. I did not read a single piece of news in the last six months. Yeah. I didn't have social media. I didn't. I mean, Dave, someone was doing it for me. Yeah. I didn't have yeah. emails. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. I just simplified so extreme because this one bad comment would throw me off the road so extremely. I'm so sensitive to. Yeah. To that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so the only way was just it was yeah. just close it off. Yeah. And that worked really really well. But it is horrific. I I find social media. Yeah, in, in the wider society as a whole, you see what it's you know doing to kids and their you know, their psychology, and you just think this is not cool. This is not good. You know, social media I know is an incredibly powerful thing, and there's no way in the world that it's ever going to go away. But there's something has to be done to prevent. You know, you look in the UK at the moment, and you know we've had a couple of suicides off the back of a reality TV show because people were being they were being trolled by horrible comments, and you've got to think to yourself. You know, how can we allow this to happen? How can people that just sit there in their basements or wherever they are writing horrible stuff about people on social media? I just don't get it. I would never write something horrible about somebody I didn't know or even someone I did know on social media. I just, I don't get the mentality that there are people out there on their phones writing, you know, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. Get her out. You know, she's only there because she's the boss's daughter. I just don't get it walk a day in my shoes and then see if you want to say that okay exclusive news Sorry, coming out soap, no, no, ex- soapbox, ex- really exclusive news out. coming out now on my podcast when are we launching claire williams instagram page we are not Nico. come on <laughs> no but you can no do way. so much good with it you can inspire you it doesn't have to be just negative uh, no, someone can do it like for you and help you with it and you can inspire so many women and around the world and even men in, in different ways no, I just we want to see the Claire Williams Instagram page no we don't yes they, of they course would be so boring anyway no no no, it, no 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 my life is too boring for anyone to follow me on Instagram okay so work in progress work in progress okay uh, one, la- one last thing then you have an incredible young superstar in your yeah. team as one of the two drivers of course George, yeah. uh, George Russell Please, for all, everybody who's a bit younger listening or everybody who's wanting a job that they're maybe not being able to get or whatever, tell us the one like most powerful thing that George did, because I think he did some smart things, which convinced you, yeah. okay, I'm gonna actually going to take this kid. Yeah. And even though maybe before he wasn't really on your radar. Yeah. Um, please, one, one thing which he did so well, which was really like impressive. Hard work has always been my motto, and I, I've learned that from Dad. Hard work, you know, you work hard, you get your just rewards. You know that. You won a world championship because you work your, your socks off. Yes. And that's how, yeah, <laughs> that's how you get success. It doesn't just come to you on a plate. And so I like that in anyone that works for us at Williams, anyone that works hard, whether they get it right or wrong, they work hard, then that's fantastic. And George, for me, really epitomizes that. And, you know, we all know what racing drivers can be like sometimes. And, you know, I'd had a few of those. But George came to me and he, you know, he really grafted for that seat. The first meeting that I had with him, he turned up with a notebook. You know, no racing driver, no offense, because ever not that I, I was in that position to recruit you at the time. But, you know, no racing driver has ever come to me with a notebook 
He took it seriously. He did a whole PowerPoint presentation as to why Williams should select him for a race seat. Serious? Yeah. He made a presentation? Yeah, but he still That's does. That's so cool. He still comes to the factory for every meeting, having prepared a PowerPoint presentation on his like key things that he wants addressed. And he does a traffic-like system with his presentation. So the things are in green are kind of, they're okay, don't worry about them too much, they're good. Then amber are things that you know I'd really like you to fix, but red, seriously guys, you know, sort this shit out here. You know, and he, he, so it wasn't just reserved for, you know, that initial period when he was, you know, wanting the seat. It continues. And it's that ethic for me of working hard that's so important. So if I get a beautifully written letter from a nine year old that's talked about everything that he's doing because he wants to work in motorsport, you know, he's going out to go kart events and he's, you know, collecting tires or whatever. Something like that, I write back personally and I say, come and see me when you're 16. Do this, this and this between now and then and come and talk to me when you're 16 if you've done X, Y and Z and there'll be a job for you. Because it's those kinds of people that make up great sports teams. So it's the drive and dedication yeah, exactly. that you love. The passion, and the ambition and it's, I hate this like entitled, you know, people that feel that they deserve it or they're entitled to it and they haven't really done very much for it. You've got to work. If you want to succeed and you've got to, you want to achieve something in your life, you've got to work hard for it. So have we got a world champion in the making then here in George Russell? A hundred percent. hundred percent. George Russell George is going to be world champion. He will be. And, but I just hope it's with us. I'm fed up with losing drivers <laughs> and they go off and be world champions elsewhere. As much as I'm very proud of them for doing that, I would love for George to be a world champion with Williams. Thank you very much, Claire. I think that's a really nice ending there. Thanks. I think everybody listening is cheering you on because we all want to see Williams uh, at the you. front again. The whole of there's nobody who doesn't. I think it's the whole the whole of the world of motorsports and beyond would love to see that. So we wish you all the best. Thank you. And uh, and more success and a good uh, good day today. See you soon. Thanks. Thank you for your time. Thank you.